I'm Gregory Berg. On today's morning show broadcast, I replayed a portion of a memorable 2005 conversation that I was privileged to record with Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Jim Dwyer, co-author of the book 102 Minutes. Here is that interview in its entirety. I cannot urge you strongly enough to take in hand a book which I have devoured over the last uh, couple of nights called 102 Minutes, The Untold Story of the Fight to Survive Inside the Twin Towers. Many, many books have been written about 9-11. I perused my calendar and and counted nearly a dozen, which I have covered on, on the morning show over the last several years. But in all of the writing about Uh, 9-11. There is a central story which, at least in large measure, has gone untold until now, at least untold in this thorough fashion. And it is, as the subtitle suggests, the story of those who were trapped inside the towers and uh, for the many thousands who got out, how they got out and uh, what made that possible, what kind of life and death decisions confronted them. What kind of obstacles were in their path? What kind of uh, obstacles were there, uh, sort of latent obstacles, uh, quite apart from the events of that day, which made escaping the towers so much more difficult? Uh, This is a story, as I said, that has not really been told until now by uh, uh, our two authors, Jim Dwyer and uh, Kevin Flynn, uh, who uh, are are at the uh, New York Times. Uh, Jim Dwyer is co-author of Two Seconds Under the World, which uh, takes a look back at the World Trade Center incident back in 1993. Uh, This latest book, 102 Minutes, uh, is uh, a Times book, and I'm very, very grateful to Jim Dwyer for uh, taking a few minutes out of his busy schedule uh, to talk with us about this book. Jim Dwyer, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much, Greg, and for those uh, kind words and gracious welcome. If Before we get into the book itself, I would appreciate knowing, first of all, were you at the New York Times uh, in 2001 at 9-11? Were you working at the Times at that point? I'd actually just started a, a couple months before, and uh, uh, yeah, so that was, I, had, I mean, I've worked in New York uh, for about 20 years. I'm from New York City, and uh, so I, I had joined the Times in May, late May of 2001, yeah. I was able to interview Kathy Trost, who is uh, from the Museum and the author of a book called Running Toward Danger, in which she talked about the efforts of media on 9-11 and in its immediate aftermath. And uh, that in itself is an extraordinary story. I wonder if you could just briefly give us some sense of what life was like for those of you working for the New York Times in the midst of such a calamity. How were you able to do the heroic work which which you and your colleagues were able to do uh, under those kind of circumstances? That morning, it was very interesting how, you know, when I look back on it, how, um, how calm the newsroom stayed, but how, you know, clearly every piston was firing. Every person just showed up, went down, ground zero, checked in. And, uh, you know, literally hundreds of reporters and correspondents and so forth were, were, uh, were on top of, you know, all these myriad little angles. And, you know, it was, um, I mean, it's hard to say it was a privilege to be able to do it, but at that hour you wanted to be useful in some way, and uh, this is what we do. This is, you know, how we try and be useful in the world, and and uh, there was a lot to be done. And so everybody kept busy and just stayed busy and worked around the clock and, you know, just tried to get accurate information and, and capture what was going on in our city. And... Uh, you know, so and that went on for for days and days and days. It's funny you should uh, mention that. The, uh, we just got an email, I guess, yesterday or 
today or today or something. They're they're doing uh, some kind of seminar with a psychologist here for uh, people who covered 9/11 and for people who've been in Iraq. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 Talking about the ongoing ramifications of that. And yeah, that. yeah. I guess coping with that kind of uh, um, story over time. I, I actually was involved in both stories, so I'm. I'm uh, I don't know. I may turn up. I don't know. <laughs> so you're a prime <laughs> candidate, perhaps. I, I guess for, for that and a lot of other reasons. But uh, that that's that was um, it was a, it was a, it was an amazing experience just as a reporter to be here at that time. Hmm. Whose idea was it to focus on 9-11 as uh, you and Kevin Flynn have in this book, 102 Minutes? Was this your realization that this story had yet to be told? Yeah, we had a very powerful sense, uh, you know, in the months after 9-11 is that you know that there were aspects to this event that we really didn't understand at all, and and um, you know a lot of that had to do with its magnitude and uh, you know and the circumstances. And there were so many elements to the thing. The country was going to war. We were trying to dig people. New York City was was trying to dig people out of the rubble of the, the trade center, and uh, we weren't even sure how many people had died there for quite a while. The city at one point was making estimates of 10,000 and 5,000, and the number turned out to be extremely, uh, you know, horrific, uh, but uh, it turned out to be 2,749. So w- what we began to think about was, you know, how did people survive and who survived and why and uh, what was going on inside that building? I had read some Years back, uh, I'm kind of a sucker for these original historical documents. And um, there, a book had come out around the time of the movie Titanic, and it was the transcripts of the hearings into the Titanic disaster. And what what had happened was when the Titanic landed in New York, I mean, not the Titanic, excuse me, when the Carpathia landed in New York with the survivors from the t- Titanic, and that was, you know, April... Uh, um, over 100 years ago, the, the Senate Commerce Committee began hearings the very next morning with those survivors uh, and, you know, and the crew and the management of the, uh, the uh, Titanic's ownership and so forth. And, and that went on for 18 days. They literally met these people at the dock and said, tomorrow morning, come to the Waldorf story. We're going to begin these hearings. And out of that emerged this immediate, powerful record that essentially shaped all of our understanding about the Titanic. That's how we found out, you know, the story of Isidore and Ida Strauss, you know, the famous... Uh, uh, a couple who uh, they were the owners of Macy's department store here in New York, and and they had, um, you know, Mrs. Strauss was in, and her maid were getting settled in the lifeboat, and it turned out that it was women and children first, and so Mr. Strauss was staying behind, and so she got out and went stayed with him, and you know, so you, you and it became a part of the, you know, the mythic history of the day, and and it happened to be factual. And and you, that's also where you found out that the the ship had had gone, uh, you know, had set sail with only half the number of lifeboats for the passengers on board. So even if there had been, you know, a very well organized evacuation, which there had not been, they couldn't have fit everybody into the lifeboats they had. And then you know the the issues of communication and coordination among the rescue ships that were at sea that morning uh, and. Um, you know, why some responded and why some didn't. So all of that had very powerful resonance as time went on with us in, in our reporting on the Trade Center and on the Twin Towers. And uh, I began, and my colleagues, Kevin Flynn and, and, and some, a group of other reporters here at the time, you know, we, we were putting together as much original accounting of what had gone on that day. And there were two basic sources for that. One was that the New York City started a an oral history project with the fire department and 
that didn't start for at least a month after the uh, uh, after 9/11, and those oral histories, for the most part, remain secret. We we've been able to, through unofficial channel channels, get about a hundred of them, and we're still litigating even to this day over the remaining 400. But the uh, other source that was very immediate and powerful were the telephone calls, the cell phone messages that people got out, the emails that they were able to send out, mostly from their handheld Blackberries, and also uh, radio transmissions from inside the building. The buildings were owned, the whole complex was owned by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and they had a taping system for their internal communications for both their walkie-talkies and for phone calls to their, uh, they had their own little police force there. So uh, we went to court and and, uh, were able to obtain uh, virtually all of those, uh, transcripts of all of those tapes, and that was about 2,000 pages. So we began to assemble a picture from inside the building, and of course there were survivors to interview, and and, and on the day... Uh, of the attacks, we, as I mentioned, had you know hundreds of people, uh, you know, at or near Ground Zero, and interviewing people all throughout the region as well who had escaped and and gotten home. And so we had this huge, huge factual record. We didn't have the same kind of organized questioning and answers that had gone on with the Titanic, but we had. Uh, in its own way, a very, very rich and powerful uh, body of, of of documentary contemporary information. And it was from that that we began to assemble the first some newspaper stories. One was one was called 102 Minutes, uh, and and then a, a second story about. Uh, difficulties with the emergency rescue response. Hmm. We should probably mention, I don't think we've said so yet, that 102 minutes refers to the time elapse between the first plane impact and the second of the two tower collapses. That that was, in effect, the the, the span of time of, in, in effect, I suppose, the immediate crisis. And your book takes us painstakingly through those 102 minutes. Uh, with uh, far greater detail than I think most of us would have ever imagined would be possible. Well, that that's a result, as I said, of this rich body of information. Now, I should say that, you know, these these messages, these tape transmissions, the phone calls and so forth were coming from, you know, obviously we all know the towers were enormous structures. They were each 110 stories. And so you had people at each of those floors, was an acre, so essentially you had 220 acres, and and people on 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 the 12th floor didn't really know what was going on, on the 13th floor. In fact, they might not even know what was going on, on the other side of the 12th floor. So, in in piecing together the stories, you you and piecing together the information, there was no one to say, well, here's what was going on in the in the top 20 floors. There was no one single source you could go to. You had to assemble it from all these little fragments, and and in doing so. You know, we came across, uh, you know, a number of of large facts, large truths about the day, and and then smaller truths about the day that had their own power. Let me give you an example of the large truth. The large truth would be that um, pretty much everyone above the impact zones in both buildings. Uh, died. Certainly everyone above the impact zone, at or above the impact zone in the North Tower died. In the South Tower, that's true for all but 18 people, who, and those 18 people managed to find an intact staircase. Below the impact zone, upwards of 99% or so of the people were able to escape. You know, that that's a very important uh, uh, set of facts to me. You know, how did they escape? Why did they escape? They escaped because the stairs were well lit, because there were stripes on the stairs that glowed in the dark, and they escaped because they made sure they escaped. In other words, they they, they took care to they, people who were working their way down the stairs stayed calmly in line. Nobody cut ahead uh, when somebody was burnt from the high floor, somebody who had gotten a 
blasted by uh, the fireball as it moved through the elevator shaft. When that, when a person like that was coming down the stairs, everybody pulled aside and made room to let them go by. Uh, when people passed uh, individuals who were in wheelchairs, uh, you know, some of the younger, stronger folks would pick those people up and carry them down. Uh, there's a mailroom worker at uh, Oregon Stanley who worked around the 60th floor, and uh, one of his colleagues, he didn't know the woman, but as he was walking down the stairs, he was struggling down on, on canes, and uh, she was uh, disabled. And, of course, there's no elevators. How else is she going to get down? He and some other people were trying to carry her, but they were having a terrible time, and he just ended up putting her over his shoulder and carrying her down 50 floors. And neither of those two people knew each other, and we, it was only through putting together, we had two sets of notes one from the woman describing the event, describing being picked up, and one was a phone call that had come in a few days, a week later, from a little girl who said she just wanted people to know about her dad because he had gone to, the, he had ended up in the hospital after this tremendous feat of carrying somebody down 50 flights of stairs. And she called and she described her daddy was coming down the stairs and, 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 he saw this lady who couldn't walk, and he picked her up, and he carried her out to the ambulance and so forth, and he had hurt his back or something like that, and he ended up in the hospital, but he's, he was fine. But we eventually figured out, ah, they both happen to work at the same company, and we were able to put that together. So that was one of the important things. Now, the people above the impact zone who did not get out had um, a different set of circumstances. First of all, in both towers, obviously, there were people who were killed immediately by the impact of the plane. But also in both towers, an enormous number of people survived the impacts, even some of them on the very floors where the, uh, the planes had hit. And those folks uh, could not get out of the building. Why couldn't they get out? Well, it turns out that when the Trade Center was being built, there were three um, I'm sorry, the, when, the, when the Trade Center was being built and designed back in the 1960s, New York City and most of the rest of the country and big cities were changing their building codes for very tall buildings. They wanted to take advantage of new technologies, and they wanted to increase the profitability of the, um, the, the, the tall skyscrapers. And one of the ways they did that was saying, well, let's increase the amount of rentable space. Now, how do you do that? Well, in cities, the reason you build skyscrapers is because you can't spread out. You can only go up. So there's a very limited amount of a footprint, you might say, for the building to rise from. So what, they, what, the, what the cities, what New York did and what other cities did, was decrease the amount of space that was required for things like staircases. You take a building like the Empire State Building, which went up um, during uh, the Depression, that has six staircases in the middle of the building, you know, say, and, you know, from, from through most of the building up to the top, it has six staircases. And at the bottom, it actually has nine staircases that kind of flares out. And one of those six staircases that runs from the top of the building to the bottom is called a fire tower, and it actually has reinforced uh, brick walls around it, concrete brick walls around it, and um, there's an, an air lock that naturally sucks smoke out so that when you go into the staircase, the, the smoke doesn't travel with you. So you, you have a, a pretty much a, a safe passage out of the building in a fire. The building code adopted in New York during the 1960s, as the Trade Center was being desi designed, removed that air, that fire tower, and it also reduced by half the number of required staircases. So you went from six staircases to three. Hmm. I remember you also mentioning that uh, in that 1968 revamping of the codes, uh, there is language there which just relaxes a bit, something which also proved to be crucial, and that is how far apart from each other uh, exits or stairways should be in these buildings. That's right, yeah. And, you know, this is not meant for very gripping drama, but it turned out to be very significant in people's ability to survive. They... they the re what they call the remoteness of the stairs was, um, uh, you know, the, the, there had been some requirements in some of the earlier codes for certain kinds of buildings that, that, that the stairs be spread out, be as remote as possible from each other. 
and that was relaxed somewhat in the in the code. And the result was in the in the trade center, from you had three staircases, not six, um, clustered more or less in the middle of the building. So this, you had essentially, you know, uh, they were all knocked out immediately. One of the reasons we know that you know having them spread out more would have been important is that in the south tower, which was the second of the two buildings to be hit, the, the staircases, I said before, ran down the middle of the building, ran right down the core of the building. But in the south tower, and in, actually in the north tower as well, it, when they came to certain floors where there was big elevator machines, they, the stairs diverted from the core of the building they kind of fanned out briefly to the perimeter and then came back into the core once they had gotten past these elevator machines. In in the in the north in the south tower, sorry, where the plane hit was on one of these floors where the stairs had fanned out. And so that left one intact staircase, at least for part of the time, and eighteen people were able to escape through that. But now when you get you know, so that that's sort of the, the large picture stuff that we were, you know, uh, finding as we pieced together these smaller things. And, you know, we, we didn't do it, you know, it was not strictly uh, our own insights or anything like that. I mean, there was a terrific journalism done in the USA Today by a guy, uh, by a reporter named Dennis Kashan on this front, and uh, also Martha Moore also writing in the uh, USA Today. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of good journalism in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Daily News and other papers, and surely we, you know, we we had the ability, uh, the advantage of, um, of of integrating that into our larger narrative as we went forward. So we we, we really, uh, you know, leaned on a lot of smart people in doing this. We also picked up stories about individuals who were making a tremendous difference. I mentioned the impact zone being kind of a borderline between those who survived and those who didn't. Uh, give me a story of a man named Frank Martini and a colleague of his named Pablo Ortiz, who worked on the 88th floor in the, ninth, in the North Tower. Frank and Pablo were um, employees of the Port Authority, as it happened. And when the plane hit their building at 846 that morning, it was several floors above them. But the damage was considerable on their floor. The ceilings were dropping down. There was walls that were knocked out of place. There was an enormous amount of rubble on the ground. Uh, some people who had been by the elevator shaft uh, were burned by the, by the fuel ball, the, the ball of fire that, was, that ran up and down the building in the, in the elevator shaft. And um, so it was very hard to get off of their floor. But Frank Martini and Pablo Ortiz and a few other men, a man named um, Mac Hanna and some others, kind of climbed through all this rubble and cleared out a path and were able to lead. You know, there were sick people, there was people with asthma who were immediately having a hard time, of course, with the smoke and the fumes. They were able to lead this group out to the staircase. But one floor above them, the situation was not as promising. They didn't have a Demartini and Ortiz there. Moreover, uh, they had a, a separate and very, very serious problem that, that doomed a lot of people that day. And on the 89th floor, one floor above, you had Metropolitan Life Insurance, some law firms, and other companies. And those people found when they went out into their hallway that the elevator shaft was completely blown apart. It was just a big black hole with smoke and fire coming out of it. Somebody tried to squirt a fire extinguisher into it, and they realized it was hopeless. The doorways into the stairs were jammed. The, the, the twist and knock of the building when the plane had hit it had knocked many, many doors out of alignment. And so you had these metal doors and metal frames that couldn't open. They were just stuck tight. And literally, the floor under their feet began to melt. And these folks... You know, some of them were pounding on the door, but some of them just said, okay, that's it. I'm going inside. I'm going to call home. And they started making calls to loved ones to say farewell. I'm not, I'm not going to be home. And um, just as some of them are making these phone calls and some of them are still standing in the, in the hallway by the door, a voice comes hollering at them from the, from the, from the, from the stairway and says, 
get away from the door. And into this smoking, melting floor, a crowbar smashes through the sheetrock and pries open the door. And standing there are these three guys covered in dust and soot, Frank Martini, Pablo Ortiz, Matt Hanna. And they go in, they clear the floor, they get all these people who are saying farewell to their loved one, they get them moving into the staircase and get them on their way down. And, and, our, they, and, and then they moved around, by the way. They went up to the 90th floor. I was going to say, they moved on to, to, to more. You say it was hardly the job of Frank Martini and Pablo Ortiz and the others from 88 to go around prying open doors. Uh, their responsibilities at the Trade Center during an emergency, I suppose officially, were to get themselves out of the building. You go on to say the sprinklers, the fireproofing, the smoke venting systems were all supposed to kick in automatically. This network of emergency systems succumbed one by one on September 11th, replaced by a lethal web of obstacles. Only when people like Martini and his crew took it upon themselves to attack those barriers, broken rubble, stuck doors, disorientation, could people go free. That's right. That, and, and they, Frank and Pablo, as we piece together the story, Frank had a um, walkie-talkie, and um, so we, we were able to pick up a few of his communications, and we were able to trace other people's radio transmissions and find witnesses to, you know, as they moved around, they, they, they helped get people off of the 90th floor. We, uh, they went down, from, so they had done the 88th floor, the 89th floor, 90th floor. They went down to um, 86. They got a group out of there. We were able to verify that they got some people around the 83rd and 84th floors. They went down also to the 78th floor and pried open an elevator door and got a man out of there. And, um, you know, by piecing together little transmissions from a security guard here and, and Martini there, we, we were able to figure out what these men had been doing during those 102 minutes. Mm. Let me jump in for a moment, to, because I think we've not yet made what is, I think, a very central point. You mention it, actually, in the epilogue of the book, when you say that in the first official telling of the story of the Trade Center rescue, civilians played little role except as helpless victims who were saved by the police and firefighters. And you say this was an incomplete history, though not uncommonly so. But that is one of the points of the way that you have written this book, is to help us understand the courage and tenacity and imagination of civilians within the Trade Towers who played such an important role in getting as many people out as were able to get out. What they did was extraordinary, and it was unheralded. But, you know, let me, I would say also that people who... Um, who were stuck also did some remarkable things. People who didn't get out, you know, uh, we have uh, credible accounts from uh, uh, multiple people who were listening, for instance, to a phone call from a conference room in the in the South Tower where the 88th floor was above the impact zone, and, and um, <clears throat> somebody had made a call out of that, and, and it was. They couldn't themselves talk, but the people on the other end could hear what was going on in this conference room, the discussions about breaking windows and what should they do and should they throw a desk through the window. And and then hearing somebody fall apart emotionally, break down because the situation has gotten so desperate, and then hearing the others console that person to make sure you know, that it was going to be the last minutes of their life and, and people making sure that this person, you know, did not feel abandoned uh, any more than, you know, fate had already left himself to, you know, him to the to this, this terrible turn of events. But there was somebody around him, and you could almost imagine that there was, you know, with the description of the voices of people trying to consult, that somebody had put an arm around this person. Uh, and that was, you know, heroic work in and of itself. Hmm. Yeah, at one point, I think now this is the very beginning of the book, you say that uh, that the, the office workers formed what you call a mass of civility, which I think is part of what you're talking about here, that that in a sense we see over and over again people behaving in uh, in very, very civilized fashion. I mean, really in many respects, the very best that human beings can be 
is on display here, not just in the breaking down of doors and that mm -hmm. kind of thing, but also, as you just remarked, in just sort of the, the, the quiet reassurance of, of each other, even in the midst of very hopeless situations and so on. That's right, yeah. And, you know, for, we, 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 I mean, we, it, in, we don't want also to, to in any way shortchange the uh, contributions of the first responders and the uniformed people who went to the buildings. They were absolutely central to, particularly as people got towards the bottoms of the building, to making sure that there was a safe exit because those buildings got very could have gotten very very bottlenecked uh, as as these thousands of people were coming down the stairs and there was a uh, you know just this excellent runway that was sort of set up by uh, cops and firefighters and security guards and and some civilian volunteers who made sure that the people when they got out of the stairs were steered through a safe passageway underground away from the trade center so that they would not get hit by any of the things that were falling from the upper floors or unfortunately any of the people who were falling from the mm. upper floors so uh, and then of course there's the, the, the remarkable story uh, this is a tape that we it took us quite a long time to sue we went through any number of, I could talk for an hour about the places we went to get this tape but it was the only tape from inside the buildings of any firefighter transmissions for a variety of technical reasons, this is it. And in there is captured the, the ascent of a man named Oreo Palmer, who was a battalion chief. And as best we can tell, Oreo and the group that he led were the only people to, of the rescuers to get as high as the impact zones. And they moved, uh, Palmer was a, a marathon runner, he was a, um, uh, he was uh, a radio buff, uh, or he was a sort of radio, he studied radios, you know, from a technical side. And he, you can you you can follow his progress up the stairs, wearing his forty pounds of gear. He had won the fire department's fitness medal four or five times in a row. And you hear him, and he's actually accelerating the closer he gets to the fire. He's talking to people who are getting down from the impact zone or just below it. And they're telling him, the 78th floor, that's, you know, there's really a lot of damage there. There's a lot of people hurt, because that was an express floor, where a sky lobby, they called it. And a lot of people had gathered there to leave. South Tower was the second building hit, so there was a lot of folks who were trying to figure out whether they should stay or go, and, and who were on the sky lobby, in the sky lobby, when the, when the plane hit. And then the wing actually brushed through there and... Uh, and, and killed a lot of people instantly, but it also hurt a lot of people. And some of those people were able to get down the stairs. But what happened was, and Palmer, Oreo Palmer, passed them on the way up, and so did a, a fire marshal named Ronald Buca. And the team that, marsh, uh, that uh, Chief Palmer was leading, leading past these folks, going up. Yeah. And they got up to the 78th floor where there was this tremendous destruction, and were fighting, beginning the fight, the fire. They were beginning to help the wounded and the badly injured, and uh, they were prying open elevator doors. And they found a young security guard up there, a man named Robert Martinez, who was uh, just 23, 24 years old, and um, you know, some kid. He was basically making eleven dollars an hour, which is not much money in New York City, I can tell you. And uh, and he's and and. Folks all had stuck by the the injured and, and, and people who were in trouble, and, and they so you you, you get a, a, a very powerful look at the effort that was made, which was was uh, you know you feel the loss, but you also feel I think when you when you get into these details, you you feel uh, a real surge of pride that you're a member of the same species as these folks. Absolutely. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Jim Dwyer, and his book is called 102 Minutes, The Untold Story of the Fight to Survive Inside uh, the Twin Towers. One of the most important things you talk about in this book, it, we have touched on it already a bit, but we need to explore it, I think, in some depth, is the whole issue of communication and lack of it on 9-11. Right. And one of the most important truths here is that some of that lack of communication and coordination was due to the extraordinary circumstances of the day and the disruption which had occurred. 
But that was not at all the full story. You talk about how that lack of, for instance, coordination between police and fire as being uh, uh, an old bad habit and uh, the result of years of, of animosity and distrust between uh, the police departments and the police department and the fire department of, of New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, that must not have been an easy thing uh, for you to write about. You know, you either you know you either face the truth of what happened, or you or you just plan to do it all over again. Uh, what happened uh, on September 11th was that, uh, as as happened for years and years, was that the two agencies, emergency agencies, came uh, two leading emergency agencies, maybe in the country. You know, I don't think there's a bigger fire department or police department anywhere. They came to this catastrophe, and they never coordinated what they were doing. You had, I mean, individuals coordinated, you know, in staircases and things like that, but the, the managers, the commanders, never set up an incident command operation. And so the police department, which flies helicopters, uh, and the fire department did not share information. Now, those helicopters knew very important things. It's hard for us to believe now, uh, but the people inside the buildings had very little sense of the extent of the fire. Of course, all of us who were watching it on TV knew. And uh, But, the, you know, the fire commanders in the lobbies of the two buildings didn't know really, you know, how many floors were involved. They knew it was a big fire. You know, there was a lot of smoke. They knew people were jumping from the upper floors. But they really didn't know. But the, the helicopter pilots for the police were flying around the, the towers, and there was a protocol set up where they were supposed to share uh, seats on these flights, but uh, for a variety of reasons, that never got implemented that day. More importantly, or as important uh, as you know, having that bird's-eye view, was the lack of communication between the two agencies. And let me give you the, the most you know, stark example is... When you when the when the first of the two towers falls, uh, collapsed at 9:59 a.m., um, the people in the north tower really didn't understand what had happened. You know, almost none of them knew that the other tower had collapsed. Some people on the very high floor, some of the civilians who were trapped up there, could see it. But for the most part, the people who were moving down the staircase knew there had been some explosion or some problem, but they couldn't see. The next thing that happened was the um, the police helicopter start, uh, could see all of this, of course, and they started issuing warnings saying that, uh, you know, A, this is what's happened, this tower's collapsed, and B, the other one is glowing at the top, you know, from about 10 floors down, it's glowing red, it's inevitable, this one is going to go too, those are practically their exact words. That, that did not, that message... Uh, which was basically delivered into the police officers, did not get widely disseminated among the firefighters. And we we found um, three um, very credible witnesses. Um, actually, we found more than that, but there were three individuals who were particularly important in, in describing what they saw as they descended. Right? These were New York State court officers who also had run into the building to try and help, and they had climbed up to around the 51st floor, they turned back, came down the stairs when the when the South Tower collapsed, and as they got to the 19th floor, they stuck their heads in there because they had stopped there on the way up, and they couldn't believe their eyes. Now, they had gotten the word that everybody was evacuating, the court officers had, and that there was some terrible trouble in the other building, or maybe it was collapsing, and so they, they stuck their head in the 19th floor, and this was a place where firefighters were taking a breath because they were carrying more gear than anybody else. You know, some of them were carrying as much as uh, 100 pounds worth of, you know, uh, between their, their, their coats and their uh, hose and various other tools and the oxygen packs. And so this is where they would stop for a breath. And they were about, when the, when the, when the, when the court officers hit the 19th floor on their way down, okay, they, they saw dozens and dozens of firefighters just sprawled out, apparently unaware of the urgency of the situation. And coats open, 
they're sweating, they're, you know, they're drinking water, they're, they're, they're catching it with the, what they call, they're taking a blow. And the court officers yell out, hey, guys, everybody's pulling out. We've got to get out of here. And the firefighter says, okay, yeah, we'll be down in a minute. But they don't have the slightest clue mm. of how urgent the situation is. And the court officers turn down the stairs, and they escape from the building with only seconds to go. And presumably not all of those firefighters uh, managed to escape at all. I, we, we believe that virtually none of the people on the 19th floor got out. We have no record of anybody who was there getting out. Wow. You pose an interesting point at one uh, in, in mentioning that, that uh, uh, a chief Pfeiffer, who was one of the uh, uh, top fire officials on the scene, uh, and how little he knew down where he was at kind of the fire command right. desk. You say, where was the fire? How fast was it spreading and where? W- which stairwells were clear? The chief, it turns out, knew less than the people he was trying to rescue. They were being briefed on the phone by families and friends who were watching TV. He had no TV, and the fire chiefs were getting only snatches of information uh, from colleagues who walked outside and craned their heads trying to fathom what was happening. I mean, it's, it's an absurd sort of situation, a tragically absurd situation in which they found themselves. You know, it's, one of the things is that it, it, it's so, one of the things that's so disappointing is that, that, you know, we have all these tools. We were in the capital of communications, or so New York likes to fancy itself in the world, and, and these tools just were not part of... Uh, you know, the emergency response that day. Hmm. May I just jump in, too? You, you say something that I thought was a fascinating insight. When you say, at the fire department, the loyalty of one firefighter to another, a soldierly bond, was at times extended to an attachment to gear and the old way of doing things. Technological ruts became enshrined as customs. I think that's part of the story here, too, that you tell us, is that uh, some of the advancements that could have been in place and the tools that could have been at the disposal of these uh, brave firefighters, for instance, uh, were simply weren't, uh, and maybe in some cases or to some extent, just due to sort of a of a lack of initiative to make those kind of moves away from the traditional ways of doing things. Well, the customs, you know, it's a very tradition-bound uh, organization, and that tradition has made it extremely effective at rescuing people in a lot of circumstances. But, that you know, we don't have, thank goodness, a lot of terrible high-rise fires in New York. There are very few. And uh, there are often, you know, bad fires in six-story apartment buildings, for instance, or five-story apartment buildings. And the firemen are very good at, at navigating those hazards, sometimes at the cost of their own lives. But often they're able to navigate those hazards and and rescue people who might otherwise be doomed. It's an extremely unusual firefighting operation in New York. There's both a, a firefighting element and a rescue element to it that, uh, uh, you know, the first people in are not carrying hoses. They're the first, the first team that goes into a burning building in New York are there to pull out people who might be trapped. So they have a, a commitment to preserving not only property but life. Now, all fire departments hope to preserve life. The, the New York Department, you know, has this custom and tradition and of, uh, you know, of rescue as well. Unfortunately, there really had not been the preparation for a, a serious fire in a high-rise that, uh, you know, that would have made the day a little bit easier. It, they were facing... You know, we we can't forget the the magnitude of what they were facing was so extraordinary and so unusual. But they, there were so many habits that were built in. They, they it was not just a question of not having communication with the police. For some reason, they couldn't communicate among themselves very effectively, hmm. and that you know created additional problems. We should mention, as you do in the book, that uh, some lessons were learned from 1993. Uh, when, of course, a bomb was set off at the base of the uh, trade towers. And, uh, and, and your book helps us understand uh, some of those changes which were made, especially uh, in the stairwells. I had not realized, for instance, until reading your book, just 
ex- how torturous that evacuation was back in 1993, how long it took, how yeah. unpleasant it was, yeah. and compared to that, I mean, it's, it's hard to say how many lives were saved this time around because those stairways uh, were so different. There's no doubt that, uh, you know, had, had they you know, experienced the same kind of difficulties that went on in, in 93, you know, it would have, the toll would have been far worse. Uh, fortunately, the lights remained on, uh, the power, uh, they had auxiliary lights, uh, auxiliary power for the stair lighting that was not present in, in 93. Um, and they had, as I mentioned, I think earlier, these glowing white strips along the edge of the stairs. So part of what makes it possible for people to move quickly is just a sense of confidence that they know where their feet need to be. And, uh, the stairways had that um, stuff in them that made that possible. The other interesting thing, too, is that I mentioned that there was an underground um, runway out that people used. That was actually a shopping concourse. And after the 93 bombing, the um, Port Authority realized that uh, it had less space down there for evacuation than it thought it did. So what it did was rip out a bunch of stores and create more exits that made it possible for people to move more quickly through that underground space. Hmm. Let me ask you quickly about some of these civilians who were so courageous in in uh, getting themselves out and helping others right. to get out and some of the imaginative, innovative ways right. in which they, they, they did so. For instance, maybe you can tell us a, a, a couple of the instances in which people found themselves stuck in elevators. Well, the, 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 perhaps the leading event of the day uh, with the happiest ending was Jan Dempser, who was in an elevator with five other men, four other men, and they had just left um, the 44th floor, which was another of the sky lobbies. All of them had just grabbed some breakfast when the plane first plane hit, and the elevator dropped a few floors and, and came to a stop. And when they pried open the doors to the elevator, uh, there was some smoke starting to come in. And they, so they figured, well, let's pry open the doors and get out of here. Well, unfortunately, when they opened the doors, they discovered they were not at a floor where this express car stopped. They were on the 50th floor, but there was no doors into the onto the floor. They just faced a blank wall, a uh, sheetrock wall. Well, Jan Dempsur, uh, some of the some of the men had some milk some of the, from their breakfast, so they, they used that to wet their clothes, and they breathed through that. And Jan had the only useful tool among them, which was uh, he was a window washer, and he had a bucket with his squeegee inside of it. He took the rubber blade off of the squeegee, and he began to carve through this sheetrock, and eventually some of the others took turns, and they got through one layer of sheetrock, and they found a second, and they cut through that one, and they came to a third, and then Jan, his hand was literally aching from all this cutting, and he dropped the squeegee, and it fell down in between the car and the shaft wall, and just vanished. It was gone. It fell, fell down on you know, 500 feet. All he had left was a little stub of the squeegee handle, and they used that to claw some more, and then they tore some more, and they came on some white tiles. Turned out they had stopped uh, on the other side of a women's bathroom on the 50th floor. So they they uh, began to kick through those tiles, and the five of them squeezed through this little hole they had punched into the bathroom wall. Came out onto the 50th floor. They had no more idea what was going on in that building than if they had been in a submarine, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, they got into the staircases and started on their way down and made it out of the building with a few minutes to spare. Extraordinary. Yes. Another extraordinary elevator story, which is not in some ways nearly so dramatic, but I think you tell us of two different instances of people stuck in elevators down on the ground floor, I mean, in the main lobby, but with, with the doors would not open, and there was such commotion and chaos there that no one could could hear them pounding and screaming for help, even though they were just a few feet away. Right, right. Yeah, there was, I mean, the, just just about 20 feet away from the uh, command center, there, was, there were two cars full of people. Some of them had just gone out for a smoke. We have, of course, our no-smoking laws here, and so people grabbing their early morning smoke outside were in the 
elevator dropped down, and they, well, here they are in the lobby. Why can't they get out? And uh, two cars of people right next to each other. In one car, there's a man by himself named Chris Young. Well, the first car, they somehow were able to pry open the doors. And they all got out, and they promised they would send help to the second man. And they, you know, they said they told uh, some of the rescuers down on the ground floor, hey, there's a car with another guy in there. Okay, okay, we'll get to him. Well, nobody got to him. Eventually, the, second ta- the other tower collapsed, and that somehow cut power, and his doors opened. <laughs> and after almost an hour and a half in, inside of this car by himself, he steps into the lobby, and he finds the place is filled with rubble and debris from the other collapse, and there's almost no one around, and someone finally sees him and yells at him, hey, what are you doing? Get, come on out of here, and, and gets him out the door just in a couple of seconds, you know, with a few minutes to spare. Extraordinary. A last question. In the prologue of the book, as you discuss some of these issues of communication and coordination, which made a terrible day even more difficult, you say, if history is to be a tool for the living, it must be unflinchingly candid. And so you and your co-author have tried to be in this book in really pointing out some of these uh, errors of short-sightedness or, or malaise. That's another word that you sometimes use. Uh, in the wake of 9-11, um, do you have much sense that that some of these sort of systemic problems that were made so... Uh, sadly evident on 9-11, uh, have been seriously addressed? Here in New York, I would say they have made um, some progress. I don't think they've uh, moved nearly as, as quickly as one would have imagined. I think there has been you know, a lot of, you know, the myths got way ahead of reality in this, and and, uh, you know, some of these issues were raised last year during the 9-11 Commission hearings. And the commissioners were attacked. How can you say attack our brave firefighters and police officers? Well, nobody was attacking them. And, and, you know, the, the, the real question was, do you have the systems in place so that they can do their job without putting their lives, you know, any more at risk than is absolutely necessary? And, and the answer was the city did not have that. And it kind of, uh, you know, to hide behind the bravery of the firefighters and the police officers and say, well, we don't need to get our system straightened out is, is really not a good answer, I, I would say. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, one of the things in, in writing the book, we, we hope that, you know, the reality of what, what happened that day, what cost lives, can be addressed. You know, you can't go back and, and, and repair what was you know, unfortunately done that day, but you can make sure that you don't squander people's bravery and their valor and their sacrifice again. The book is, again, called 102 Minutes, The Untold Story of the Fight to Survive Inside the Twin Towers. It's published by Times Books, a division of Henry Holt and Company, and uh, the authors Kevin Flynn and Jim Dwyer. Jim Dwyer, I'm very grateful to you and Kevin Flynn for writing this marvelous book, and I thank you today uh, for joining us today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Well, you're very kind to have me. Thank you.